Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Uncommon Comedy Podcast. I am your host, Brian April. Uh, I'm not going to mess around today. We're going to get right into it because our guest today is uh, absolutely amazing, and I've been really looking forward to this interview. Uh, he is a, a longtime comedian, been around, knows everybody, done everything you can possibly do in this business, and was also the talent coordinator for comedy and the warm-up act for the uh, Late Night with David Letterman. So we're just going to bring him right in. Please welcome... Eddie Brill. Eddie Brill, come on in, sir. How are you? I'm here. And just to correct you, it's Late oh, Show. Late, late Night show, was sorry. the NBC show. No, it's okay. A lot of people say that. It, the Late Night was the uh, NBC show that eventually Conan got and Seth Meyers now has. And uh, okay. I was at the CBS show, uh, which was called The Late Show. The Late Show. Late Show right. with uh, David Letterman. I always kind of, I knew I was going to stumble on that. But you're not the only one. It ha it's it been in news, <laughs> on the news, on the networks, on in the magazines. They 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 get it messed up. You so. know what it is? I, I actually even Googled it last night to make sure I had it. And that's probably where I, I got it. So yeah. I uh, can't trust the internet these days. No, anyway, you can't. <laughs> you know, I can't trust myself. Because the other day, I was trying to find out the difference between ITS or IT apostrophe S. Because I'm confused by that. Now, mm -hmm. it has the posture it has or it is or something like that. Um, and then there's it's, which is, you know, a different version. And I learned it and I studied it and I did it. And then I wrote an article and I put it in and I did the wrong one. <laughs> you know, so I, you can't trust my, me. No, it's that's always an interesting uh, one. People get that one all messed up all the time. That they're there and there. They always right. mess those as well. There's there's three ways to spell two. There's two ways to spell four. There's you know there's other ways. There's the many ways to spell eight. There's many ways to spell one. You know, it's very interesting how difficult the language can be, and it's in it's. And as much as I study it, I have a brain block, brain freeze on it, mm -hmm. and I'm sure people know it better than me, but. And I've been writing forever, and I still mess that one up. Well, and the, the problem is it's just reverse because the possessive is without the apostrophe. Right. You know, which every other thing for possessive has the apostrophe, so it, it's just backwards. So it, right. it doesn't follow the, the logic of the rest of the language. So that's no wonder people mess that up. And it's interesting you, you bring that up because one of the things um, that I love about your comedy, I, I, I got to see you do comedy uh, like three or four years ago, I think, when we met the clean comedy conference and um, it's, you have so much wordplay and you're, you're so um, smart and you have intelligent humor and you have this, I don't care attitude and you're, you're a New York comic. Uh, I think we can classify that. And that generally has a lot of people have the stereotype of New York comics as like, they're just going to come up and they're just going to curse and, you know, whatever, and just be aggressive and nasty. And, and you have this whole different, uh, attitude. We, I mean, you have the I don't care kind of feeling, but you have this, again, this wonderful intellect and uh, this amazing sense of humor. And I, I think um, it's the thing I, I really, really appreciate uh, about you and your, your style. Well, I appreciate those really nice words, but I will tell you that right away it shows that we should never make assumptions about an area or anything uh, because New York has always been the breeding ground for some of the smartest comedians as you know you can look at philadelphia with david right. brenner and you know dom irera and you can look at new york with george carlin and uh, you could look at boston with lenny clark and jay leno or you could look at you know and say that this comic is a certain way because they're from that area or new yorkers are all have attitudes or they're right evil. and in fact it's the opposite way uh you know one of the things in uh another different kind of uh assumption is like that people who are vegan or vegetarian or have no energy and all this and a lot of comedians do jokes about that when in reality you're so much more energetic when you eat that way so and that's not the point i wanted to make because a lot of people freak out when you talk about their food and and taking it away or whatever it's almost like the you know the second amendment of food you know, mm -hmm. don't take away my uh my my stakes, but the uh, the whole thing is to make an assumption on it. Now, separately from that assumption is that, well, see, I always love words and I always love wordplay. And I got, you know, I found sort of my match when I saw George Carlin on television with his wordplay and that inspired me even more. And then always, I, I always liked intelligent comedy. 
Um, like the the movie Being There, uh, you know, the Peter Sellers movie, to me is one of the best comedies in the world because it's so smart and subtle and great. But then again, you know, Blazing Saddles is one of the funniest movies on the planet, which is the opposite end of that, which right. shows so many different kinds of ways. But the other part is you said the I don't care sort of attitude. Mm -hmm. I've only learned that in the last five to six years, I would say, and I don't even know if it's five or six, but in the most recent part of my life, because I learned that I did a, a podcast years ago, a very good podcast that actually came out of Finland and it was called, um, we are not here to please you. And it was, it was very smart and very cool. And I love the attitude of we're not here to please you. And it, it just clicked for me that as a, comedian, my job isn't to please the audience, to kowtow to what they want. My job is to do what I love and talk about the things that inspire me. And if the audience likes it, that's fantastic. And then you look at dating or you look at any other aspect of life. If you're just kissing somebody else's ass, or I hope you can say yeah. a butt, okay, <laughs> um, kissing someone's behind, it's not as attractive as if you have your own strength, your own backbone. My comedy has grown leaps and bounds since I've taken up the attitude of, you know, not mean. I want you to right. laugh. I want you to be pleased with what I do. But I'm not here. And my job isn't to please you or to find out what you like and then cater to that. That's really interesting because uh, some people, when you when you hear this, like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't care. They, they mistake that as I don't care about the performance I'm giving or and that's. Not what we're talking about at all. The opposite. Uh, I, yeah. I love it so much, and I care so much about it. And I can't tell you, you know, we're recording now. Here we are in almost June, and I haven't been on stage for a live show since the middle of March. And I'm going crazy because I love it so much. Yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, I, I've heard a few people talk about that, you know, the, the I don't care, and it's not about pleasing the audience. And that's something I haven't hit yet because my style, I like to be very energetic and whatever, but I'm always have that thought of like, okay, are they digging this, you know? And if they're not, like, how can I switch and get them, you know, okay, they're not digging this type of material. Let me switch over to this topic or let me switch to this. And I, I, I see that uh, on stage and that, that calm and that peace of just like, this is totally my spot. You are all in here, you know, in my living room. And like, this is what I'm doing. And I just admire that. And um, what, besides the podcast, what kind of like, when you first started to try to implement that or, or did it just kind of, you said it kind of clicked. Yeah, because it, 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 the whole idea behind it is to have a nice confidence and nice, have a nice backbone. You know, uh, comedy is definitely soothing to, for people and to laugh. Some people don't want to hear, um, you know, topics that are controversial or provocative. And, well, then you don't go see that comedian if, or that type of comedian if that's what you don't want. That's your choice. But as a comedian, if like you were saying, if I'm on stage and I'm trying to please them, then what I'm doing is I'm not being myself. Mm. I'm not being the best self. I'm not doing what I love. And then, you know, look, look, if I'm getting paid many thousands of dollars for a corporate gig, in a sense, quote unquote, you know, selling myself out to make the money that I'm going to make. And they say, look, we don't want you to say this word or we don't want you to talk about um, this topic. Well, you're not going to do it because you've made an agreement before you went out there. But you're going to a comedy club or you're doing a comedy special or you work in a comedy theater. You know, it's your show and it's, it's up to you to do what you love. Now, if you do what you love, the audience senses that and they kind of sit back and let you take over. And they and if they don't enjoy part, well, like they'll wait until the next part comes and hopefully that will make them laugh. Hmm. That's something I'm really, once we get back out of this, that's something I really want to focus on. I mean, generally, I kind of just do what I want to do anyway, but I do like to, you know, obviously listen and just kind of go, all right, they're, they're kind of over, you know, this topic or whatever and, and switch up on the fly. But uh, And that's good too. That's good too. And I don't mean to cut you off there. Mm -hmm. It's a great point. You know, they might get tired of a, of a premise or they might, you know, and it's, and then, you know, it's a dialogue. It's a symphony between you and the audience. So, mm. you know, you're doing it and all of a sudden you realize, hey, wait, I've, you know, I've exhausted this with this audience. Now it's time to, you know, maneuver to a different place. Mm. All the while staying true to who you are. 
I like that. I like that. So let's um let's let's back up a little bit. You've been how long have you been doing a uh, stand up? In a row, I've been doing it um thirty six years. Okay. In a row, in July it'll be thirty six years. I started in college in an improv sketch group. Um, did a little stand up in Boston when I was in school, um, and then I quit college. I mean, I quit stand up after college, and didn't start again until thirty six years ago. And uh, July of nine, July twenty ninth. 1984. Wow. So yeah. what uh, what inspired you to get started in stand-up? Um, a lot of my, I went to Emerson College in Boston and Emerson was a very creative school and I went for broadcasting. You know, I love sports and I wanted to be a sports announcer or a DJ or both. I wasn't really sure. Uh, I met some friends. We uh, all thought each other were funny. We formed a comedy group and it was wildly successful. And our mutual friends uh, we're doing stand-up like Stephen Wright was in college with us and and he was a great stand-up and we would go see him and he was just amazing and and it kind of said hey let's a couple of us guys in the comedy group said hey let's try stand-up and you know we did okay you know if we were in an audience with mostly our friends they would laugh whether we sucked or not and you know that's always the beauty of having your friends in the audience and you know so it was kind of fun and I kind of liked it and I liked the feeling of making people laugh. It was very powerful. I remember in the comedy group, the first sketch I was ever in where I got laughs, I, it was just overwhelmingly beautiful. And I've been chasing that laugh the, my whole life, trying to get back there, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I tell people it's, it's like a, a drug, this adrenaline rush, and you just want more and more and more, and you just keep chasing it. And it's, um, it, it, I wouldn't do anything other than that. I absolutely love it. Uh, right. And then you, yeah. and to finish with, uh, the, the, answer the question is I just thought well that was really fun but I need a real job and I moved from Boston where I was going to school to New York and I you know didn't do stand-up for that time I did comedy writing in a sense I did advertising but it was weird because advertising is mostly lying for a living and comedy is telling the truth for a living and I just saw the difference I really felt dirty being in advertising because I was lying to people and right. it's never a good feeling. So I got out of that. I worked it for my father. He had electronics wholesale business. And it was just to make some money. And I watched how my friends who had stuck with comedy had done very well at it. And then I, that's why I decided to go back into it. And opportunities came up for me to run a comedy club. And I could host on the weekends. And it just, it, it, I was drawn back in. And the minute I got back on stage, I went, no, this is what it's all about. This is what my life is about. That's awesome. Um, do you remember by chance your first show, the first time you got on stage as a stand-up? As a stand-up alone, because I had sort of, in the comedy group in college, I had done, a, like I'd come out at the beginning of the show and talk to the audience and I'd just play with them. And I was sort of stand-up, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's stand-up. But the first time was a comedy, was a, a bar that we all frequented called Crossroads in Boston. And it was on uh, Beacon Street off of Mass Avenue. Mm -hmm. There was a bunch of us who, you know, I, I can't remember everyone who was on the show, but like Paula Poundstone came by and Lauren Dombrowski, who was the head writer of Mad TV eventually, and Dennis Leary and Steve and Jim Ball, who were brothers in college, who were very funny and in the comedy group. We all kind of did some stand-up and we got, you know, some good response. So I remember that first time it went really well. And I thought, Oh my God, this is, I could do this. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it's amazing. What is, what is it like being, um, in that kind of group with some of those legends of comedy? You, you mentioned Stephen Wright, you mentioned Paula Poundstone, who I absolutely love, love, love her crowd work. I'm just trying to get there. Oh, yeah. yeah. What, what is it like kind of being in those circles and just, uh, being around that and being, you know, inspired you know were you inspired by a lot of them or well was it a lot of pushing well you know we we enjoyed each other's company we enjoyed laughing and we didn't look at it we weren't legends back then i mean right. lauren was a very very funny comedian but we didn't know she'd be the you know the head writer at matt tv right you know that dennis larry would star in movies you know we didn't know what people were doing um we didn't know where paula poundstone's career was but she, you know, every one of the people I just mentioned made made us laugh, and it's a beautiful scenario. Along the way, we, you know, we inspired each other to continue on, and we give each other feedback and notes. And then years and years and years later, speaking of Paula, I was working in San Francisco at the Other Cafe, which is a great comedy club, no longer exists. Uh, and uh, she was the headliner, and she had gotten 
really incredible by then. And it was uh, like going to school for a week. The week mm -hmm. I worked with her, it was amazing because she is the best at working with the audience of any comic I've ever seen. And uh, so I was inspired by her. Um, and then as she continued to, uh, you know, become a, a, a stronger comic, and you know, the more you do it, the better you get. It just can't help it. Can't really teach it. You either have it or you don't. She had it and has it. And, uh, you know, along the way you get, you, along the way I had a lot of mentors, people who took their time to grab me and say, Hey, what you're doing is good. And here's some suggestions if you want it. And I promised myself that I would be that same person to other comics all along the way. And, you know, and then I, hopefully those comics that I've helped along the way are helping other comics along the way. I think I'm pretty sure that's happening. That's awesome. And, and you kind of mentioned that. What was um, what was probably the, the best piece of advice that you were given uh, regarding comedy? Um, the best one, of course, is, you know, how do you get better at it stage time? It's the only way to get really good at it. We've done workshops together, you and I. Mm -hmm. And you could workshop comedy. You could workshop music. You can workshop theater. Um, it's a great act active action to do and to get better at what you do and find how other people perceive you and you know get uh, honest feedback which is very important it's kind of nice to know how you're perceived and learn from that but stage time is the number one advice and then the other advice i learned along the way was vulnerability to have a strong foundation in the truth and then to be vulnerable enough to you know to realize that you know as powerful and as strong as we want to be we're all kind of nerds mm -hmm. and uh you know we, we can create with this incredible you know facade that we're the strongest the greatest whatever but in reality we're all just humans and we all make mistakes and thank god we make mistakes because how else are you going to learn right now it's um i always find it it interesting when i talk to to someone with the the experience and you know who's, who's a legend in this <laughs> like you are uh you always sit there and you kind of go man they, it always looks like it's so easy and you would imagine that the, oh there's no struggles and all of that but we all know that there are struggles especially in the beginning how long did that take for you to kind of things to kind of settle in and, and almost click for you it's hard to say because at the beginning you you do very most comics most comics have the story of they did well the first time and then you get at because you're not in your head about it Right. Then you get in your head about it immediately, and most second times people suck, and I was that was my scenario, and then you know like a few times later you you do better, and you, you know it's never really consistent at the beginning. I can't say for everybody, you know, but I'd say some of the greatest comics in the world have, you know, come out sort of acting like a comedian that wasn't themselves, and struggled because they were not being true to who they were. And you just don't know that. You think you have to, you you only see comedy from this perspective. So in order for you to uh, to become the person that you are, you have to, you know, you, you just have to do it and be it. And, you know, I mean, I think that's the most important thing. It, it's, it, it, it's funny because 10,000 things are rolling through my head with that answer. The, the most important thing really, I think, is to just, you know, there's a gr famous thing, uh, you know, I'm really, I'm all over the place with this answer and I apologize for it, but it, it leads to like 30 different areas. <laughs> but one thing that uh, is, I've always uh, heard was Michelangelo is making the statue of David and he wants to make it and he, all he has is this huge chunk of marble and he chips away at the marble and people say, how did you make this incredible statue out of this mar block of marble? And he says, I just chipped away at the pieces that weren't him. And that's what I've learned is that we chip away at all of the pieces that weren't us. We've been lied to a lot in our lives. People have projected their fears onto us, like in advertising, in, you know, like say parents trying to raise you, and not in a negative way, trying to be a parent for the first time. And then they give you these rules and that they had when they were kids. And we just build and build and build. And we get this big slate of marble around us of stuff that's not us. Well, as a comedian, we chip away at the pieces that are not us. And uh, and then we uh, and then we find who we are ourselves, and then boom, we start bringing that to where we're at. Wow, that's uh, I really like that that uh, scenario. That's really cool. That I've never thought of it that way. Um, is that something you would say that uh, a lot of young comics make as far as a mistake is trying to be somebody else? Yeah, me and I'm one of them. 
You know, we all try to be like, I, you know, I saw George Carlin in my, and I loved him. And I was, I would talk like that. Mm -hmm. How can you make something like this when this happens? And I, you know, that, that's not how I talk. That's how George Carlin talks. But we only know from what we see. So we start trying to recreate what we see. The only comic I've ever seen, and there might be others, that didn't do that at the beginning was Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. Young kid, he came out, he told his truth. Whether you agree with it or not, it was his truth, and he never stopped doing that because that's all he knew. But, you know, all of the great comics that I've seen, I've pretty much seen them at one point when they're acting like comedians, and then you see them grow out of that. And and once the, and you had originally asked me how long it took me before it clicked. It just kept clicking along the way. I remember a couple of years in, I felt, you know, this is really great. I'm really loving it. I, I, I'm learning things. I'm getting better at it. And then three years later, I was, you know, even better at it. And then, you know, I had periods where I, you know, would stall. Or when I worked at Letterman, I was booking all the comedians. I had to focus on thousands of comedians who were contacting me and their material. So I kind of took a step back in my stand-up, although I kept doing it. I just did what worked. And I wasn't as creative with my own stuff, which is my own fault. Mm. Um, and then uh, and then once the Letterman thing was over, I was able to get back to being myself. And the last five years, I've just been building and building. And it's I've never had more fun on stage than as I've been having up until the break. That's awesome. Do you... Um do you still feel like you're you're learning and progressing? Yeah. Or do you feel like you've kind of mastered it all? You don't feel like you mastered it all. It's no. I, I feel like I'm I'm pretty good at what I do. I'm proud of who I am and what I do. I have a great time and I believe the audience has a great time. They might not remember my name, but they'll never forget me, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I that's what I feel. And it's a cocky thing to feel, but I, I honestly feel that I leave an impression on people, whether it's good or bad, that's up to them. But I uh <laughs> I, but I also feel that I can keep getting better and better. My, you know, I've been write, working on a book. I've been writing. I've written 320 stories for a book about this incredible life that I've had. And my writing was pretty good at the beginning, but it's getting better and better. In fact, I'm, uh, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago, and I presented it to this editor today. And the editor came with incredible stuff that I didn't even think about. So I, you know, as much as I think I'm a pretty good writer, this editor today really showed me how I could even be better at what I do or, you know, by, by trusting other people who I respect and then learning from that and never being defensive about it. Hmm. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty incredible to say since you've been posting some of those stories on uh, social media and they're, they're just incredible. The, the, the career that you've had and the experiences you you've been through are, are just amazing. Um, but you have all these amazing stories, so let's let's talk about the one that everyone likes to, to to harp on. What is what is the worst show you ever had? Oh right. Well, there's always there's always a bunch, but the worst one, and I've talked about it before. Um, I was it, what compounded it to be even worse was I, I had, was really crazy about this woman, um, and uh, her name was Susie Allaire, and I've always wanted to see her again. I mention her name occasionally when I do the story, so if she ever sees it, she can contact me. But I was so infatuated by this lovely person, and I convinced her to come with me, and it was the worst gig of my life. And I never saw her again after it. And I, felt, <laughs> I understand why. It was a very horrible scenario. There was a comedy club in Boston called The Comedy Connection, and they were The Comedy Connection was one of the best comedy rooms in the world. It was a small room. It got bigger later, and they moved to a different location. But when it was at the Charles Playhouse, it was pretty much one of the greatest comedy clubs in the world. And it was intimate, and the ceilings were low, and uh, the comics were great, and the community was great, and everyone helped each other out. So it was just really a beautiful uh, scenario. So they also had a bunch of sort of satellite rooms where you'd go out, you'd make 90 bucks, you know, to do this club or you'd make 75 bucks to do this club. And you. Um, so I was working this show and it was just north of Plymouth, Massachusetts, where they, you know, the pilgrims came in and it was called the Charlie Horse. It was perfect name for it. And we um, I'm driving Susie to the, the gig and everything. And, uh, you know, and I had to borrow a friend's car because I'm in Boston. I live in New York and I take her in this car and it's a beautiful drive. It's, you know, the, it's the coast of uh, the, the New England coast. And we're driving down and the water's beautiful and everything is great. And I, she was very shy and very nervous. And as much as I'm a comedian, when I'm shy, too, you know, especially 
with women and dating and you know especially at that point in my life you know you, there's always the insecurity that you that's very hard to beat is that you know men and women are you know if men and men and women and women whoever you're dating you know whoever you like you get you turn into like a child when you're it's like you know it's but anyway and that's how i felt so we get to the venue and it, it looks like it's a biker bar and there's a bunch of motorcycles out front which is great i've worked motorcycle bars and i've you know it's been i've always had a good time i've, I've never been in a situation where I, I worked a biker bar and it wasn't fantastic um so yeah we pulled up and looked in and we opened the door and it's like the i don't know if you remember the end of blazing saddles when they're all out having a big <laughs> fight in the street mm -hmm. well people were fighting it was like 150 people in there hitting each other with pool cues and chains and just <laughs> pounding each other and Susie who's so demure is like scared and I'm like where do how am I going to do comedy in this place and where is the stage and it doesn't look like there's any there's pool tables everywhere and the guy who was at the door I said where's the comedy part of it and he goes hey it's over there and he pointed to his left so I we leave the room with all of the killing and the fighting and the beating up and all that kind of stuff and we go and there's a separate room for the comedy. And sadly enough, we get in the room and there's only women in the room and they, I think they're the, and this is very sad, the beaten and battered women of the guys in the other room. And I say that because there, it was, it was a lot of black eyes and a woman in a sling and there was a woman with a baby carriage and drinking a beer. And it was really very sad. Now, again, I, going to make anyone laugh and I think these people need to laugh or they want to laugh or whatever Susie's freaking out and so now sit her in the front and they start the show and and they they go from New York and in the crowd Whoa! you know the worst <laughs> thing to do in a Massachusetts place and I go up and they're not paying attention they don't want comedy they just want to talk among themselves they're all friends they come probably every Wednesday which is the comedy night and they all hang out together and they're just waiting for these guys to stop fighting so they can go home <laughs> and it and again it's very very sad it's nothing to joke about violence at all no. or the way these people are treated and you know so I, I really with Ernest I wanted these people to laugh and have a good time they weren't paying attention I was a pain in the ass that I was there talking into a mic while they wanted to chat with each other and uh, so anyway so I go up and I start doing it and they're not paying attention they're not listening nothing is happening and it's really hard and the only person watching is Susie because she's kind of in the front and she's looking at me and she looks like I want to be anywhere else in the world but right where I am right now <laughs> And I'm not getting laughs. Obviously, no one's paying attention. Susie's too uptight to laugh. And probably I wasn't funny or feeling funny or in this scenario. I didn't have the experience enough to work a room like this and, and turn it around. It's horrible. And the only person who was watching me was the woman with the baby in the stroller drinking the beer while she's pushing the stroller. So um, I said to her, I said, well, at least you're paying attention. And she just goes, F you, and throws the <laughs> bottle at me. And I duck, and the bottle hits the back wall. And I'm, I'm completely drenched, and shards of glass are in my hair and down my uh, sport jacket. And I'm drenched, and glass is all through my body. And Susie like wants to run out of there. And, and luckily the other comedian showed up because he was late and I had to keep going until he got there. And I just ran out of there. And it was the longest ride home, 35 minutes. It seemed like forever and ever. And it was horrible. I've never seen Susie since, <laughs> but it goes down as the worst gig of my life. And I, you know, it not only was it a horrible gig, but I felt bad and right. sad for the people that were involved. Yeah, especially when you want to try to, uh help them and you know give them that laughter and you just kind of feel like oh, i wasn't able to give that to them that's but that's that's quite the <laughs> yeah i mean the only person paying attention hated me yeah and through <laughs> the one person who was your audience through the bottle that's yeah. so that's so funny i wonder how that baby turned out this is a million years ago <laughs> Well, yeah, and you were, you know, you were kind of set up to fail with the the New York and a Boston because I'm I'm originally from Boston, so I know, you know, that history. I sort of suffered something similar to that. Uh, if I if I can just say this real quickly, I was in um, outside of L.A. and it was, uh, you know, an urban room, which is uh, usually minorities, uh, African Americans, Latinos. And it's not a big deal. I've done plenty of those, and uh, I had just moved to San Diego. The host goes, "How do you want me to, you know?" bring you up and I said I'll just say I'm you know 
Boston clubs and colleges, you know, no big deal. And there's uh, for the people who don't know, there's a rivalry or there was between the San Diego Charger fans and the Raider fans, which were mm-hmm. very much in L.A. And so the host comes up, he goes, this next comic, he's uh, he's from San Diego and they start to boo. Right. He's a Chargers fan. They start to oh. boo more. And he's white. Brian April. Oh and they my booed me on the way up to the stage. <laughs> and it wasn't like that playful boo. It was, you know, the, the yeah, real hateful boo. Right. This is you're going to get killed like one of the Steelers fans in Oakland. Exactly. And, you know, that's you're going to die. And you're either going to get out of there scathed for life or die or both. <laughs> yeah. And I, I almost did. I, I was supposed to do a showcase for the, the owner or the booker. And then the host, I was supposed to do 10 minutes. As he hands me the mic, he goes, do five. Nah. And so that I'm like, at that point, they're booing at me. So I just doubled down and I'm like, hey, I'm not a Chargers fan. I'm a fan of the page. And like, they just totally booed like I just peed on the Pope. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and then uh, <laughs> wasn't wasn't a great show. I did. I was able to get a couple of tables. But then as I was leaving, the comic I was with goes, yeah, we, we should go. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, ah. <laughs> he goes, they're talking about jumping you after the show. Oh, I'm my like, God. All right, we're happened. out. <laughs> I did, I did a show in New Hampshire with a, a comedian from Philadelphia, and we were both visiting Boston. And, you know, when you work Boston, which was, the, you know, where I started and where I, I and I loved Boston and New England. And I, we had a gig in New Hampshire, which I love more than I love Boston or Vermont. And I love those places. New Hampshire is one of my favorite places in the country. Mm-hmm. It's just mountains and trees and lakes, and it's just spectacular. And uh, so we go to do this gig, and I go first, and he's going second. So I go first and I did, luckily did very well and I get off stage. I bring him up and he, I meet this lovely young lady who was at, at the bar and we were talking and, you know, we had a hotel room to stay over for the night. And I was thinking that, OK, something might happen with this lovely person. And we were really getting along. She was so great. And the comedian who was on stage was just bombing and not only bombing, but taunting these guys in the front. And these guys were like bikers in a sense, but they were really, they, these guys wanted to kill this guy. Mm. They wanted to kill him. And he tells to me while he's on stage, he says, Eddie, go grab the car and pull it around. And when I get on, he says it right into the mic so everyone can hear, because we're getting out of here the minute this is over. I'm like, what do you mean getting out of here? I'm with, right. You know, I'm going to, ha- I'm going to maybe get lucky tonight with this <laughs> incredible person. And, uh, and that didn't happen often for me. <laughs> you know, I was, you know, I was kind of a nerd and I didn't, I kind, I was, I am kind of a nerd. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking this is really going to happen for me. And, uh, so what I had to do is I had, I ran out to the parking lot, started up his car and he said, good night and ran into the car. And then we took <laughs> off with guys chasing us. Like, you know, like we were in Charlottesville in South Carolina and wow. they you know, had they were going to burn him to the ground. And, you know, ugh, it's horrible. They're, I've had a lot of situations where they weren't really great, but I've had some of the great I've had some of the most amazing experiences that any comedian can dream of. I worked all over the world. I followed I've worked with incredible comedians, incredible actors and worked in some of the greatest venues on the planet, worked in. Bangladesh and worked in Australia and, and Ireland and you know so I, yeah. I you know for all the negative things that have gone on the good things have been a thousandfold more. Mm. So let's uh, let's get a little bit uh, into um, comedy writing. What is your process like? Interesting. Um, it's all different. Um, one of the ways is I come up with some premises and I go on stage and play which is really, I'm comfortable up there. So I figured I play, I have kind of an idea. I have some little notes that I made and I'll, you know, get boom, boom, boom from one place to the other and ad lib and see what works. And then, you know, if something works, continue to do that. And if it doesn't, abort, 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 and go to the other places. Another way I do it is I'll write out some stuff that I, some ideas, like in the George Carlin way, like I have this bit about similes and using animals happy as a clam and, you know, a bunch of these kind of things. So I'll make a list of all of the similes that have animals and then make a list out of those and then memorize that list and then do the bit that way. And, you know, there, there's so many different ways I, I, I will do it. And, uh, but, you know, some of it's coming from, I come from home and I bring notes, or sometimes I come from home and have stuff in my head that I've memorized. And then the third way is I just play on stage. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, what advice would you have for uh, new comics trying to uh, better themselves? We always talk about get on stage as, as much as you can, yeah. but um, is there other piece of advice, whether it's professional or, you know? The number one advice that people won't take, and I the same way, is patience. Be patient because it takes years and it you know you have to just keep doing it and doing it and you get better and better as you do it more and more and that's the number one that's a major advice but no one will ever listen i didn't listen you probably didn't listen and no one will <laughs> listen to it and then years and years later you go oh patience yeah i should have known that a long time ago um the other advice is don't there are no rules so don't listen to people you know see how you're perceived by others and then and your friends and your peers and and see how they feel and then do what you love and don't try you know you, you there are no rules so like if you're a comic who does something different you like you do it different than somebody else don't try to be like somebody else be the best you on stage the comic that do the stuff that you love and if it doesn't work and you still believe in it keep doing it because eventually you'll be great at it you know there are comics who would audition for letterman who weren't right for letterman there were comics who were right for Letterman. I, we didn't have enough spots for everyone, but there were comics who were phenomenal that weren't right for the Letterman show. And I would tell them, don't try to be different to be on Letterman. Don't change what you're doing to do to fit into this. You know, shoehorn yourself into this scenario. You know, be the best you out there, and then you know somebody else will pick you up, or you'll have your own special, and then no one can tell you what to do because you're yourself. A lot of people try to tell comics what to do and how to do them. The truth is, is you do it yourself. You 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 trust yourself. You learn to let go. You learn to be vulnerable. You learn to let you know stop holding on to the mic or tighten and be all there. Just go up there and go. Look, this is what I love to do. If you like it, great. If you don't, next. And and, and be prepared. You know that's the other thing. When you're going to do a show, be prepared for it. I mean, it's mm. the stage time is gold. And, you know, when you go up there, you know, if you're if ad-libbing, you're really good at it, then use the ad-libbing techniques. But it, also bring, have material ready so and work on it and, and, and prove it. And if you have a piece that works, don't be afraid to add and subtract the next time. You know, don't throw like a lot of people create five minutes and it works really well. Then they throw that five minutes away and do a brand new five minutes which is talented if you can keep coming up with new five minutes that are brilliant. But what happens is you lose out on the ability to take, like what I would do is take those five minutes and then reconfigure it. And in a sense where you go out there and you say, okay, well maybe, you know, two minutes of the five minutes really work well. So let me take those two minutes and build on those two and bring them back. Because if you throw the five minutes away, you're not using those writing skills to make those five minutes even better. That's mm -hmm. part of the process, not for everybody, but part of the process for most comics is to uh, not just throw the five minutes away, but to use some of that to build and become a better writer, become a better performer, better comedian. Well, and I think too, with, with doing that, you you waste that time and that energy that you spent creating those two minutes or whatever. Um, why not? keep that and just build a, a bigger and better act with all of that, as opposed to just waste. That's why I, I don't do uh, topical current events because by the time I get it down and polished in the way I really like it, it's, it's no longer relevant and you right, start but, over again. But it doesn't hurt to do one joke that's relevant, that's mm -hmm. topical, just so you get the practice. You, right. know, you do it, you do the joke, it lasts for a couple of weeks and then you, you, toss it out. Hmm. You know, if you do jokes after COVID and you're up on stage and you have one joke that works and you do it and you get a big laugh, great. And then, you know, you're going to toss it and hopefully COVID will pass and we'll be back to normal and, or whatever is normal is and go out there and, and then, you know, and then it's gone, but you right. have the ability to, to try to, to be topical. You know, Mark Norman, the great comedian, whenever he comes out on stage, I'm so impressed because not only is material great and he is a great, ease and his performance but he'll take he'll make a joke based on some joke in the previous comedian's act he watches the comedian and comes on stage and ad-libs something about that has to do with something the last comic talked about and he's not stealing he's not he's not doing anything negative the positive is that in the moment he's forcing himself to create something funny in the moment and you know to, that's a talent yeah, that's and it also shows to the crowd that you're in the room and you're 
you know, paying attention and you, you're not just some robot up there just going through your motions too. So that, yeah. that they feel like you're all experiencing the same thing as well. Um, how did you get to uh, start getting involved with uh, Letterman? Um, one thing about this business is who you know. Mm -hmm. And it pretty much has always been that way. And, you know, very rarely is it different. I um, went to college in, at Emerson in Boston and uh, a guy I knew from Emerson. I, I was living part of the time in L.A., a good part of the time, late 80s. And he recommended me for uh, the warm-up gig at Saved by the Bell. They had lost their comic for the show. Probably the comedian quit because it such a, was such a hard job. <laughs> but the money was very good. And, you know, I in those days, completely broke and, and dead. And, you know, it really helped to get that gig. And it was hard and it wasn't really fun. The cool part about it, it was literally four feet across the hall from The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Which was great because all the people would come through and you see everyone. And when the show was dark, you can stand on the star and look out in the audience and dream about being on a Tonight Show. Wow. Um, but I did that uh, uh, as the warm up there and I got some experience. And then it was, I guess, in 88, 89. And then in 1990, I moved back to New York and got some other opportunities to do warm up, including doing I two or three different warm up gigs. And then I got the Dana Carvey show warm up gig. Um, you know, Bob Smigel was the director. Uh, Steve Carell, uh, you know, uh, Steve Colbert, Louis C.K. was one of the writers there, and uh, I think the head writer, and, you know, it was a lot of very talented people working on this show, and it was a brilliant show, and it was such a pleasure to do the warm-up for it, um, and then that was over very quickly, unfortunately. It was a little too smart for network television, so they canceled it immediately, and uh, and then I was, you know, back to just doing stand-up, and I was traveling around the world at this point, going to Europe, and and doing a lot of comedy there, uh, which was even the mo was probably the most influential part of my comedy career was going to other cultures and be able to do what I do and learn how to pull that off. Learning to write for humans as opposed to writing for New Yorkers or writing for the specific groups. And um, I got a phone call because Louis now had worked at the Letterman Show. He was a writer, and they were looking for um, they were looking for a warm up. So Louis recommended me and I went over and I met Dave and got a six week trial period and it lasted 17 years. Wow. Yeah. It's fantastic. Wow. We'll, we'll come back to this. I just want to go back and touch on what you just kind of said about writing for humans and, and performing in Europe and how that influenced you. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah. When you go to another culture, another country, you know, you could say, Hey, I, you know, you know, that TV show that I, that we watch on Friday nights or whatever that, you know, if they don't, if they didn't get, on their network, if they didn't get the streets of San Francisco TV show, I'm just making up some TV show that would have been only about some local thing. They probably get it now. Um, you know, you can't make those references. I never had a streets of San Francisco joke, but uh, Carmold and, and uh, you know, what's his face? Uh, Michael Douglas. It was a great show anyway. I, so, but you know, when you go over to England, you can, if you're going to do a joke about something that only you really know about, you have to preface it a little bit to explain it more than you would if you were doing it in New York or in anywhere in America. Um, um, when I, Went over there, I was saying, how am I going to make these people laugh? Well, you know, everyone has dreams. Everyone has fears. Everyone has literal dreams, you know, where you sleep and you wake up and you nightmares. And so if you write material that doesn't matter where in the world you live, then it, it people can relate to it. And as long as you you are vulnerable and honest and true to yourself and you let everyone know that, look, I might be have this bravado, but it'll, it'll always come back and bite me in the ass if I get too cocky. Mm -hmm. um, everyone can relate to that. And that's because that's what every human being goes through. Um, you know, we were as little boys, you and I, I don't know about you, but I know I was taught that to be cool, you had to be macho. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it always felt weird that it felt silly. And in reality, it turns out the mo more macho you pretend to be, the more insecure you show who you are. You know, to be the most authentic you, the key is to really show your vulnerability. And that I learned from watching all these great comics all through the years. So I learned in Europe that they didn't like pandering and that Americans pandered like crazy and still do. You go to a comedy club and there's, you know, hey, let's give it up for the troops. And mm. it's like there's nothing to do with the joke. And, you know, God bless the troops. But, the, you, you know, they're the ones fighting and they should get the applause based on what they do, not you bringing it up. 
You know, what you're right. doing, you're using their work to get your laughs and uh, or your applause. And you really, uh, as a comedian, I'm not looking for applause. You know, that's the last thing I really want. I want laughter. Right. Well, applause is what, you know, that's, you know, you can use a formula and get applause. You can, you can write Patch Adams, the movie, and get all the, you know, that's a formula that works and it's going to work, but it's a comic and you have your own formula that's you. That's the, that to me, that's the ultimate. Hmm. I know all over the place in, in this topic, but I learned a lot from working in England. The very smart comedy scene, very smart. Those, some of the best comedy that I've ever seen in my life is British comedy. Uh, I, you know, I've always liked Peter Sellers or Monty Python and that stuff to me was always the most brilliant of all. You know, not, not saying that American comedy isn't brilliant because it is. Um, but I really learned a lot. Then I went to Ireland and they're a country of storytellers and boy, they don't, if you pander, they'll turn off on you in a second. Hmm. You know, they think of Americans as panderers. They, you know, it's great to be here in Ireland. No, it isn't. We know we grew up here. It's a, you know, it smells like urine in downtown Dublin, you know, or whatever, hmm. you know, that's the, they don't want you to kiss their ass. They don't want you to do that. So I learned how to, they don't even want intros. When I gave them an intro, uh, on one to one comic in Ireland and in London. And he looked at me like, what? And I later became friends with him. And I said, why were you so rude to me when I gave you my intro? He goes, intro. He goes, I thought you were bragging to me about your career. I go, no, I was asking you to say <laughs> these things to bring. He thought I came up and said, Hey, I've done the Letterman show. You know, he, he didn't know that he thought I was bragging that I did Letterman show. So I don't care. I'm, I don't even, you know, we don't even have, we don't get that on television or whatever. I found out later that he says, why would you tell everyone how great you were before you came up there? How about you be really funny? And then the audience knows you're really great. Mm. He said, you know, I know a lot of friends of mine who have done television shows. They're awful comics. They just got, had a lucky set or they knew somebody or they, you know, they had one good set that one night and got television. They're awful. So just because you said that I did, I had my own Comedy Central special. It doesn't mean you're great. It just means you just have, you might be great, but it also I've seen a lot of Comedy Central specials that I'd be embarrassed to own. And my own, I, I can't watch my own Comedy Central special <laughs> that I filmed in 2002 that aired in 2003. I wish I would have filmed it in 2010 or 2012. I, I was pandering. I was over the top. I, 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 I can't even watch it without cringing. Mm. That's uh, I think that goes for most people as you, you look back at, at your career and what you, what you do and you're like, Oh, I can't believe that was, that was me as you evolve. But um, you know, what's interesting. I saw a set of mine from 1986 in Boston uh, during the world series. I was doing a show and, uh, and I was, you know, I was so green, but I was, I didn't care. I was just had all this energy and dancing around and laugh. And I went, Hey, that's a pretty good set. I, <laughs> I, I wish I, I wish I kept that up. You know, why did I stop doing that? Good thing you didn't tell him you're from New York then, because uh, oh no, '86 especially uh, the oh, World Series was oh, the, uh, the Mets. I begged them not to to say I was from New York. Yeah, that was the yeah. the Red Sox Mets uh, yes. uh, year. So, um, so we we talk a little bit about New York. Uh, a lot of comics, you know that that seems to be like the pinnacle. Uh, that in LA, depending on where your priorities seem to be. Um, what is it? There are a lot of comics who have no idea what that scene is like, and they they always try to get out there too soon. You know what? What do you say? Uh, what is New York like, comedy wise, for people? It's great for comics. I mean, there's a million comics, and there's like seven clubs. You know, and yeah. not, not seven, but you know, there's there's more comics than clubs, and it's not hard if you're really great at it and you're willing to put the work in. That's my brother telling me that <laughs> going to be coming. Um, the you know, if you put the work in, you're going to get, you, you're going to, you, people are going to notice you or the comments will recommend you and you'll get stage time, but it's not mm -hmm. easy to get stage time. I always recommend, like I started in Boston, that really helped me or go to San Francisco or go to Denver or, or Minneapolis or Austin or Seattle, you know, Chicago, Atlanta. These are some of the best comedy cities in America. And then uh, with great comedy scenes, mainly because the people who are the, 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 people running the places, 
you know, like uh, Wendy Curtis in, in Denver or Bert Haas in Chicago, you know, these people, they really create an incredible scene and you can work and work a lot and get great at it. And then when you show up in New York and LA and you blow, you, you, all of a sudden they've never seen you before, you come in, you blow them away, then they have no choice but to have to put you on. Mm. If they see you at the beginning of your career, oftentimes they're not savvy enough to, to not realize that you can grow. They were like, well, you know, that comedian kind of sucked and, you know, which is a shame as a comedian, as a booker. I know when I see a comedian, if they're not great, it doesn't mean they're not going to be great. I give them another chance six months later or whatever, because I know that you can completely grow in a, like I, I've been doing it 36 years. And uh, last year I thought I was very good at what I did. I'm better than I was last year only because I work like a maniac. Right. Now you talk, uh, um, we're kind of jumping around the place here with this, but that's okay. Letterman, uh, you ended up um, being the talent coordinator for comedians. What was a typical day? Like what were the numbers of, of emails or packages that you would get? Unlimited, tons <laughs> and tons and tons. And, and uh, you know, when I first took over, there were like 16 boxes of videotapes. That's how I started in, as the booker in the beginning, in March of 2001. And I, you know, had to go through all these videotapes. And in reality, out of the videotapes, and I watched every one, only two people made it through those boxes. Wow. Uh, Nick Griffin, uh, Karen Rontowski, both incredible comedians. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time, I would go on the road as a comedian. Say I'm working the Comedy Works in Denver, and I, I'm working Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so they'd let me work Sunday. They put 10 of the best local comics on and I'd take notes and watch their best comics and then give them notes when it was over and, uh, and, you know, stay, stay to the end, sit with the comics, uh, let them know, um, how they were perceived, if they were right for the show, if they had, an, uh, if what they needed to, to do to get on the show, I would always tell them, don't try to change what you're doing like i worked with some i saw some comics that were phenomenal that you know weren't right for network television they were you know too sort of quote unquote x-rated for network television but i'd like i would tell that comic to never change just to try to get a network but there are comics who are sort of quote unquote x-rated who can go on network television look at richard pryor richard pryor did the ed sullivan show richard pryor did the tom jones show at his height of his genius you know, when he did the Ed Sullivan show, Richard Pryor, which was an old CBS show in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, Pryor cleaned himself up and was, a you know, a little milk toast for the room. But when he was at his best and edgy and smart, uh, the Tom Jones show put him on television and were able to get him on despite because it's not about the language because language has nothing to do with comedy. Like we did a clean comedy show together and we're mm -hmm. being clean here. Um the, you know, words are not dirty. Words are just the costumes for intention. It's the intention. Like if you talk about going to the bathroom, to me, that's gross unless it's clever. Um, but if you t say a dirty word because that belongs, like quote unquote dirty word, um, and it fits because the character normally says that, I don't find anything, you know, in that. I had did a show, um, I had a, a Christian comic come to me, uh, send me a tape, and it was the most disturbing, um, creepiest tape I've ever seen. <laughs> and I was embarrassed for this comedian. And, you know, so just by saying they're a Christian comic doesn't mean they're a great comic or a clean comic, because the, the, the choice of material, although there were no curse words, mm -hmm. um, was creepy. And so, um, yeah, it, it's a hard thing to, to delineate because there's so, there's so many, everyone has a different style. You're different than I am, but you've always been really funny and you, you know, I can't imagine since we haven't worked together in three, four years that you haven't, you know, done the work and gotten funnier at it and gotten better and being more comfortable than when I saw you the first time, but you right. were funny when I first saw you and I told you and I, you know, I'm, I never lie or make it up. I, I don't try to sugar-coated i'm not mean but i'm just i'm honest and and caring well yeah thank you for that 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 means a lot coming from you and that kind of leads me into the same thing when you're trying when you're dealing with all these comedians 
who it's their dream. They're like, I'm going to be on Letterman. I'm going to be on Letterman. And you have to tell them, no, right. how do you, how do you handle that? Not easy. You know, literally, I, because say 4,000 comedians want to be on Letterman and I get to put 15 on and eight of the 15 are regulars that do the show every year or 10 or 12 of the comics are regulars that do it every year. Um, I only have room for three new ones or, you know, and that's out of thousands. So that means 99.9% .9 of the time I have to say no to friends of mine to comedians who are great for the show, but there's no room for them at times, maybe a year down the road or two years down the road. It wasn't easy, but it was part of the job. Hmm. And yet it really sucked because people thought they knew me and judged me based on assumptions. I met a lot of people who said, oh my God, you're such a nice guy. I didn't expect that. <laughs> you know, I did a radio show uh, in Los Angeles, I'll never forget. And the, the woman who was the host of the show said to me, Oh my God, you're, I just, you know, expected you to be this tyrant and this tough guy and this stuff. I go, well, you know, I don't know how you came up with that. I, this is who I am. And we've stayed friends, oddly enough. It was her birthday the other day and she wrote a beautiful note to me. And I, it made me realize that when I first met her, she had this, she was ready to go to battle with this jerk who, mm. me, and uh, it wasn't the case. Well, it's like we talked about and right off the top of the show, the assumptions of, you know, of that so and I, I will say that's kind of you get that thing because you have this booker you're the gatekeeper and you're always no and you you know like you said you're always very honest but you're you're respectful and you're you're tactful with it and um and so i think people just think you're going to be this ruthless monster like no you're terrible you saw right. you, you know and i would never say anyone they were terrible i would just say you know because i know that even if you are terrible you have the chance to grow into be a better comedian hmm. but i had to tell some of my best friends no because they weren't right for the show or like i i had pitched a bunch of comedians that i loved and the show turned them down and it hmm. just broke my heart i mean literally i was brokenhearted um by by that and it was part of the job now i know uh you gotta get going uh pretty soon but a few more questions and we can talk sure. about uh the, the david ortiz children's fund um now you have done you said you did a comedy central special uh, i know you've done um network television and i kind of want to talk about uh, performing on network television do you remember the first time you did it and what was going through your head and what was that experience like for you First network show I did was Star Search in 1986, recorded it, it aired, I think at the end of 86, the beginning of 87, right after the Mets Red Sox World Series. Mm. And um, I, I, I was very proud of how I, how I did. I was very proud I didn't win, um, but I got my first network experience and I learned a lot from it. And I, did, I vowed that I wouldn't leave Los Angeles without some positive experience. And I went over to the improv and the comedy store, auditioned, did very well. Um, and got to work these incredible clubs. And so that worked out really nice. And that was the, the, the first, first thing I'd ever done on network television. And I, you know, you only get 90 seconds, hmm. you know, so it's not, you don't really get to, you know, like when you're doing like say the Letterman show or the tonight show or any of those kind of shows, you, you get like a five minute set. Letterman was four and a half minutes. Other shows were six minutes. And if you, you know, you think of your comedy performance as an album as a, as an hour show. Uh, but you only on these shows, you only get to play a cut from your album, like a four and a half minute cut from your album. So that's what you do. And you got, you can't, you don't want to cut your material down to make it different. You don't want to be different than who you are to be different. You want to be yourself. And I think the, the beauty for me was being a comedian and know what it was like to have my dream to be on Letterman to when I have other comedians on Letterman, I knew how they felt and I knew how to help them, along the, the path to get there. Um, when I did Letterman for the first time, even though it was the warm up, it was the thrill of a lifetime to hear that, you know, Letterman say, and now Eddie Brill and I come out and the band's playing and, and they were playing paperback writer by the Beatles. And there was, you know, it was like, a, and I went out and the audience laughed and Dave was happy and uh, it was what a thrill. Mm. And now you've seen a lot of comedians make their debut on TV what uh, what's one of the biggest mistakes um, that people would do or comics would do for that would rush through their set because they're trying to fit eight minutes into six mm. and it's very unnatural and you talk too fast and blah, blah, blah. And you do this and then you're not who you are and you appear because you're only in a small box 
you you know you see the close-up on your face you appear insecure and not in charge when you're rushing unless that's your style and you're comfortable in that style but um you kind of take your time and you kind of let people know hey i got this you sit hmm. back relax i'm i i got this baby i'm not here to please you i'm i worked really hard i earned my letterman set i'm showing you that uh it that this is this is what you know this is what it's all about this is what i've dreamed to do and now i'm doing it and i hope you're loving it because i'm loving it and that's the the attitude all right last question on uh, on late night tv um as far as comedians who are reaching out to bookers trying to get on those shows what are some of the the biggest do's and don'ts um or what's one of the fastest ways to get yourself uh out of the mix well, it's more important about what to do. And the key is to show a shorter set. Like I would always ask the comedian to send me five to seven minutes. And then I can get an idea of how, what their set was like. And if they were great and the whole set was great, then we'd be all set. But if like seven minutes of three of it was good, I'd want to see another 10 minutes or another 15 or whatever. So just give them five to seven minutes because they get thousands of submissions. So remember that even though you're the one person and it's your one tape and it's your whole life and everything you've dreamed of, that these people have to go through thousands of tapes. So they're going to be able to you you want you, they're going to judge you immediately. Um, you know, I would give a comic you know three to four minutes, and if they were cursing, which I don't mind cursing, but if they were cursing and they were uh, submitting it for Letterman, if they're cursing, they're not respecting the audition. Or if they were rushing through it, you know, I know that they were nervous about it. Or if the tape wasn't good, I didn't care because I mean the quality of the tape because you know it's just that's the way it goes. I wasn't looking for a quality vi visual. I wasn't looking for eight by tens, that's for sure, because why do I need an eight by 10 when I can see you in a video? You know, I, I have eight by tens where I look really handsome, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they know they have all of those touch up things. You know, I didn't care about a resume because it didn't matter what you've done in the past. You could have done nothing. You could have done a million things or you write for the show. So just remember to just put the, you know, when you're making the tape, don't be in your head about the tape because when a joke doesn't go over it, and it shows, in, it shows in your face, and it shows an insecurity. So when you're making a tape, and if, even if you screw up a joke, laugh and have the attitude like, I don't need this show, I don't need this booker, I, I'm more attracted to that. You ever mm -hmm. like meet a, a woman that you like, or anybody that you like, and, and they have that attitude like, look, you know, uh, I, I don't, you know, if they're, if they're desperate, it sometimes puts you off. Mm -hmm. But if they're confident, you're like, I'm in love with this person. And that's what I think, you know, how bookers look at comedians who, you know, I want people to be like, I don't need any bro. I, I don't care if he doesn't like my tape. I'm going to send it to somebody who cares that attitude and being really, really funny and smart and fitting the style of the show uh, is, a, is a big difference. Letterman liked the Jake Johansons and the Jim Gaffigan's mm -hmm. and the Wendy Liebman's, the quirky comedians who had great material and performed it well. And, uh, you know, there are incredible comedians who were geniuses and brilliant who weren't on the show because it didn't fit the style of the quirkiness, material driven comics that Letterman really loved. Yeah, very good answer. Uh, so, Eddie, if you want to follow Eddie Brill, uh, you can follow him on Instagram at Eddie Comic. E-D-D-I-E -E comic and Twitter is at Eddie underscore Brill. Uh, we have one more thing that you are a part of, I believe. It's the Organic Grill podcast. Is that correct yeah. on uh, YouTube? Uh, if you want to just tell us OG about talk. I'm sorry, one more time. It's Let's called see. OG Talk, O-G-A-L-K. And I interview some of the greatest people in show business where like comics like Colin Quinn and uh, 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 who else did I, Judy Gold and Artie Lang and... Uh, Roy Wood Jr. And then rock and rollers like, uh, you know, uh, John Joseph of the Cro-Mags. And then mm. I've interviewed uh, Doyle from the Misfits. And I've interviewed Bobby Ojeda from the Mets and the uh, person who runs uh, the Farm Sanctuary. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it's just a, a mixture of really incredible people with very passionate about what they do. And I'm very proud of this thing. So if you go to OG Talk, uh, it's a green logo. There's about 25 interviews, uh, and they're live, and uh, you know, they're, I mean, they're videos, so you can see them on YouTube. 
Excellent. So yeah, check out the uh, OG talk on YouTube. Uh, again, you can follow Eddie on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit real quickly about um, the David Ortiz uh, Children's Fund. Um, yeah. Tell us how uh, you kind of got into that. Well, I had worked the uh, comedy club in Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, and it was fantastic. And I, it's a very long story that I'll tighten up. I met this woman named Tiffany, who uh, her last name is, was Brick. And when I was a child, uh, my brother hit our neighbor Tiffany with a brick. So it was kind of a kind of interesting way that I met this Tiffany. Tiffany introduces me. It was a fantastic person, and I met her whole family, and they were great. I father and I became best friends like in two days, uh, being there. And then she introduced me to her boyfriend, who was a minor leaguer, named uh, uh, David Arias, hmm. and he was uh, just traded. To, he was playing for the Beloit team in uh, up in Wisconsin, and uh, it was. It eventually was. It was David Ortiz. He was a young kid and uh, a terrific man and the two of them were a very lovely couple and i've known them for ever since those days and it's been a long time and i've been involved with his um he works with kids with congenital heart failure and all he needs to to save a kid's life is five thousand dollars so i've gone down to dominican republic with him and a bunch of celebrities and gone down and we've raised money for the david ortiz children's fund now i just want to throw this in because it's not something we talked about, but Roberto Clemente is my hero in baseball. Mm -hmm. um, Roberto Clemente, I was able to work with David Ortiz and other people who loved Roberto Clemente as well. Before we did the taping, I wanted to uh, see if I can contact Roberto Jr., his son, about his foundation, because I also love the Roberto Clemente Foundation. And while we were recording, Roberto Clemente called me. And it's so eerie because on my caller ID, it says Roberto Clemente. <laughs> and it's like, oh, Roberto Clemente called me from the dead. You know, he, <laughs> he died a long time ago. Right. Um, so I've been in very, uh, always involved, and that's for children. So I've always been involved with children's organizations, uh, uh, junior diabetes and uh, all that kind of stuff. And the David Ortiz Children's Fund comes out of the same heart and soul as the Roberto Clemente Foundation stuff. And that's uh, working with children to give them better lives. And help. And the or David Ortiz's Children's Fund um, helps kids with heart conditions. So please donate if you can. Uh, he, it, you know, I've met a lot of these children who would have been dead, who are now having thriving and having these incredible lives uh, because of the work of David Ortiz and all of his people. Yeah, and that's David Ortiz, uh O-R-T-I-Z, if you don't know who that is. Uh, David Ortiz, childrensfund.org. And one more time, uh, the Roberto Clemente uh, Foundation. Foundation. Okay. Yeah. So uh, definitely check those out. And uh, Eddie, I know you got to run. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and talking through uh, your, your career and sharing some knowledge with us and telling the stories. I really, really appreciate it. And I want to thank the, the viewers and listeners for, for coming in too. And, but once again, thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, talking with you again real soon.